This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Good morning. Open up your Bibles to John 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17. And uh, today we're going to just really follow up on where we were last week, um, finish up the prayer of Jesus um, in John 17. So we've covered most of it last week. We'll cover the last bit today. So I'm in John 17. We're going to read verses 20 through 26. This is what Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this this glimpse into Lord Jesus, your intimate conversation with the Father. We thank you for what this reveals to us, and we pray that the truths represented in this prayer would grip us today. God, that you would open our eyes, that you would warm our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would stir our affections, that you would strengthen our will. God, that you would just work in us as we as we understand what you are praying here today. Oh, Lord, show us yourself. Show us your love. Um, show us your work in the, in the gospel on our behalf today, we pray. We invite you, Holy Spirit of God, to open up this passage of Scripture and to address our hearts and to ultimately to change us for your glory. God, we pray that we may be one just as Jesus prays here today. Show us what that means and empower us to live that life as a church, we pray. God, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit to proclaim your truth today with clarity. And I pray that you would give us all ears that we might hear what you're saying to us through this passage and that we might have hearts to respond and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a particularly powerful passage, I think, for a lot of reasons. Uh, One, it's Christ himself uh, praying. But I think the context makes this passage particularly powerful. Jesus is praying at the very end of his life. And in my Bible, if you flip the page, or in your Bible, if you just look right over, we see that the next thing that happens is Jesus' arrest, and uh, then his uh, trial, and his crucifixion. So we are hearing really the very last words. The passage we just read are the very last words recorded by John that Jesus speaks prior to his trial. So we get a glimpse of the heart of God. We get a glimpse at the heart of Jesus in his desperate hour of trial. What is it that's on his mind? What is it that he is praying to his Father? What is it that overflows from his heart in prayer at this significant moment just moments before and, and, and verses before in the Gospel of John, he is arrested and then tried. And here's what we see 
about Christ's heart at this time. We, we looked at the first 19 verses last week, and we saw that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying that the Father might be glorified and that He might be glorified as well through His death. His hour has come. In verses 6 to 19, we see that Jesus was praying for His disciples, those who were there following Him. And we talked about how He was praying for their protection He's about to suffer indescribable, indescribably as he sacrifices himself for us. And yet he is concerned for his followers, that they be protected. He is concerned for his followers, that they experience joy in their lives. And he prays about that. He is concerned for his followers, that that they are set apart for service, that they are sanctified and sent. So his burden is for them. And in this passage, in verses 20 through 26, we see him turning the direction of his his prayer uh, in a different direction. Here's how I want to deal with this passage today. Jesus sort of repeats some themes in here. And uh, so rather than walk through this kind of phrase by phrase like we would normally do, I'm going to... Uh, ask some questions of the text, and then take some of the phrases and passages and group them together. And what I'd like to ask of this prayer this morning is, who is Jesus praying for? What is he praying for? And why is he praying this? So who is he praying for? What is he praying for? And why is he praying this? First of all, who is he praying for? Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only. These only are those he's prayed in verses 6 through 19, his disciples, those who are with him. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for all of those who will receive their testimony, which is sitting in our laps this morning. All those who will receive the testimony of his disciples and will believe. He's praying for us. The verses we're reading, the the close of his prayer, the final recorded words in John before his arrest, Jesus is praying for you. Now let that land on you this morning and think that Jesus is praying in this most important hour for us. He's looking at his sacrificial death. He's looking at physical suffering. He's looking at a suffering as he absorbs the wrath of the Father on our behalf that that is incomprehensible. He is looking at that kind of suffering and he's praying for us. He's praying for us, those who will believe. Well, what is he praying for? If he's praying for us, not only these, but those who will believe, what is he praying? Look at the next verse, verse 21. That they, we, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He prays that we all may be one. He's praying for unity. He's praying that those who will believe in Jesus would be unified. To be one means to be unified. Unity is not an optional extra. I mean, unity is not um, just sort of a fringe benefit. Unity is not just a secondary issue. Unity is significant so much so that unity is what's on the heart of the Lord. As he is about to die, he is praying that the effect of his death ultimately would be that his people would be one. Not an optional extra, but he is he's elevating unity to a central place of concern. Unity uh, is the burden of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is about to give his life and then be raised for us to birth the church, to birth a people who would follow him. It's a weighty matter. Now, what kind of unity does he envision? Is he praying for he, he speaks about us experiencing the same type of unity that he and the Father experience together. Look again at verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So there's mystery here. What, what is he saying? The Father and me and us and we... Um, there's mystery whenever we talk about the Trinity, isn't there? The Son speaking to the Father. Um, th- this is beyond our full comprehension to be sure. 
But we can affirm what the scripture teaches, that God is one um, and that he is in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Son is praying to the Father, and he's praying that we will have a unity like he and the Father enjoy. He is in the Father, the Father is in him, and then he says that they may also be in us. So the scripture regularly talks about our being in Christ or Christ being in us. It's the language of union that we are, as if you're a believer, you are in union with God. You are in union with Christ. You are vitally connected to Jesus. Next week we'll baptize some people and we will make the point that they are in Christ and that's why they are, uh, they are being submerged in water to represent their death and coming out of the water representing new life because they are in Christ and they identify with what he did for them. Or as Jesus talked about this just a few chapters before in chapter 15, two chapters before, 15, uh, five, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Jesus is praying there. It's like branches that connect to a vine. We are in him, and he is in us. He is the source of our life. We are dependent upon him. Without him we can do nothing. So he's saying that, Father, you and I are vitally connected as one. And I am vitally connected with my followers as one. And I pray that they all may be one as you and I are one and as I am one with them. So you as an individual are united to Christ, but you are also united to all of those whom Christ is united with. So we are united to one another as well is what he is talking about there. Look at verse 23. He reiterates this again. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. That we may become perfectly one. We have a unity together as we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Here's the point Jesus is making in this prayer. Is that the basis of our unity is our union in Christ. It's our individual union in Christ that is our basis for unity together. And this is a significant point. This is significant because this dictates how we are to view unity and how we are to pursue unity. This is really an important point. The basis of our unity is our union in Christ. The reality is this, that our union will be, our unity together as a church will be expressed as we pursue Jesus because it is our union in him that is the basis for our union together. Our unity is not cultivated by us pursuing unity. So we don't run at unity to get unity. We run at Jesus to get unity because our unity is based on our union with him. It is the byproduct of our union with him is our unity together. It's it's interesting in these chapters that we've just covered, chapters 14, 15 and 16, before this prayer, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure and he's been communicating to them that he will sustain them, that he will see them to the end, that he will actually send a helper, the Holy Spirit, that he will dwell in them. So he's saying all of these kind of things to give them hope that he will sustain their walk with him in his absence because the comforter will be with them and that's even better, that he will sustain the mission through them. And here he's promising through prayer, it's an instructive prayer as we listen to it, here he's promising that ultimately he will provide unity because the unity comes from his unity with the Father and our unity with him. So we look to Christ, we pursue Christ, and by doing so we have unity, not by pursuing unity. Here's an illustration that I think makes that that point. This is something that uh, A.W. Tozer wrote about unity, and and, uh, I think it makes this point well, that the more we focus on him, unity will be the result. This is what he wrote. 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together each one looking away to Christ 
are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You get the point he's making. The 100 pianos are all tuned to a standard outside of them, the tuning fork. And if they're all tuned to the fork, they're tuned, they're in tune together. And he's making the same point about us. And this is, this is just an important uh, sort of theological idea to bear that it is our union with Christ that is the basis for our unity together. And it is the pursuit of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ that will ultimately uh, cultivate our unity. God provides unity for us in that we're joined together in the work of Christ, and that unity is cultivated primarily and in the first place by our pursuit of Jesus and not our pursuit of unity. That's an important, I think, an important point, because oftentimes we can just get wrapped up in unity, and sometimes when there's just a pursuit of unity, the gospel gets left behind because we can find all kinds of things to unify around that aren't Jesus and the gospel in the church. And we can also find all kinds of things to separate over that aren't about Jesus and the gospel. We're very good at that as people, as Christians. We're very good at forming identities around things that aren't the gospel and making those a point of unity And we're also very good about breaking over certain practices or certain secondary doctrines or certain ideas that don't have to do with Jesus. So what is he praying for? He's praying for us to be unified. He's praying for the church who, what? He's praying that we would be unified, that we would walk in unity that is an expression of our union with Jesus Christ, the union he provides for us. Um, Next, why is he praying this? Why is he praying this? What is the reason for this prayer? Look at verse 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, this is a statement of purpose, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The reason Jesus is spending his final words of prayer that are recorded, at least, the reason this is the final instruction prior to his speaking on trial that we receive from Jesus is because he wants our unity to be expressed so that the world may know who he is. Our unity doesn't terminate on us. Our unity is to be a tool, a means to reach the world that they may know that the Father sent the Son. Look at verse 25. He says, O O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, He's saying the world does not know the Father right now, but one way that the world will come to know the Father is that the work of Jesus on the cross will be applied to individuals who will be saved and will be in union with Jesus Christ, and that through our union with Him, we will be united together, and as the people of God are united together around the person and work of Jesus Christ, the world will look on and come to the conclusion, Jesus is praying, they will come to the conclusion that the Father sent the Son to save us. That that would be the only explanation ultimately for our unity together would be what Jesus has done for us. He prays that that the world may believe that you sent me, that he is the one sent. We've talked about, we've called this series Sent. We've talked about the fact that the primary uh, way that Jesus is referred to in the Gospel of John is the one sent. He's called the sent one, the one sent by the Father, or he uses that verb, I've been sent, more frequently than any other designation in the Gospel of John. And so here he's saying at the end of his life that I pray all this has been about saving individuals and making them one, saving a people for myself so that the world will know that what I'm saying is true, so that the world will know I am who I say I am, so that the world will have proof that the Father really did send the Son. See, he's saying that unity is an apologetic for the gospel. And by apologetic, I don't mean saying I'm sorry. I mean a defense. You've heard of apologetics. The study of apologetics is giving a defense for the faith. 
And so Jesus is really praying here that a primary defense for the faith would be the unity of the people of God. That as we walk together in union with him and thus, in, and, and thus walk together as one, that it would say something to the world, that it would communicate something about who he is, that it would be a defense of his claims, that our union with Christ and our union with one another would be a display of the person and work of Jesus. I mean, he is dying. He is about to die to make this true, to make this real. It's through his death that we experience union with him, and it's through his death that we're brought together. His body, when we receive communion, we're recognizing that his body is broken so that we may be one. We receive that as one people the family of God, the church. We receive that as a communal meal. We receive that as the people of God because his body was broke so that we're not a collection of individuals who have a common interest in religion. But we are people that have been joined together by the breaking of Christ's body for us and our trust in him as the Savior. We're joined together because his blood was shed, which... By faith in him, our sins are forgiven through the shedding of his blood. So we're reconciled to him. We're made right with him. We who are enemies are made his friends because his blood is shed. But the shedding of his blood not only brings reconciliation with him, it brings reconciliation with others as well. And this is why it's an apologetic for the gospel, because we can be joined together who may not normally be joined together. We, people of God, can be joined together because his blood was shed, reconciling us to him and reconciling us to one another. His body was broken to make us one. So why is unity? Why is Jesus praying about this at the end? Why is this his burden? Why is he crying out to the Father about this? Why is unity so important? Because the truth of the gospel and the message of the gospel going forth and penetrating the darkness and leading others to Christ, that's what's at stake here. What's at stake is Jesus wants the truth of who he is and what he's done to be taken to those who don't know him. And it's not merely a verbal message. It is a verbal message, but it's not merely a verbal message detached from any reality. It's a verbal message that comes with it a demonstration, an example, an apologetic, a proof, a picture, the church unified. Now, that's an imperfect apologetic. That's an imperfect example. That's an imperfect reality until we're with Jesus in heaven, and then we all are one apart from sin. So it's imperfect to be sure. But it is an example. It is an example of what Christ does in the cross. And it's an example. Our unity can lend credibility to the message in the eye of someone who doesn't know Christ. Or it can erode the credibility of the message. It can call into question the credibility of the message. So Jesus is saying there's a message, there's a truth, there's a good news to be proclaimed, and there's something to be seen as well. There's good news to be proclaimed, which is sufficient for leading someone to Christ, for sure. You don't have to see the church to become a Christian. You have to hear the message of what Jesus has done. But there is this this proof, this example, this demonstration, this life of Christ through his people who in union with him are thus in union together. It's our part of our witness. So Jesus is praying here at the end about gospel witness. He's praying that his people would be able to give testimony and witness of what he's done in a significant way is that they may be one. He says it twice here. He prays it as if we don't get it. It wasn't sufficient. I mean, the father's not hard of hearing. You know, he knows what we pray before we pray. This is an instructive prayer. It's sincere from the son to the father, but it's primarily recorded for our instruction. And so in verses 21 and verses 23, both times he reiterates this, that they may be one so that the world may know that there is a purpose beyond us gathered here today, beyond you gathered in your community group tonight or Wednesday night or Tuesday, whenever your group meets, beyond our family, our, our families 
being united, beyond just having good friends, beyond just being a part of something. There's something beyond that that he has in view. And it's lost people coming to Christ. It's the dead coming to spiritual life. It's those in darkness seeing a light. As we sang this morning, light of the world shine upon us. And the light of the world shines through the corporate testimony of the gospel having an effect in a people's lives so that they're one, so that they are unified. Let's look at verse 23 again. We're still talking about why is he praying this, that the world may know. I and them and you and me, that's union language, that they may, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He prays that they may become perfectly one or completely one. The NIV translates it this way. May they be brought to complete unity. May they be brought to complete unity. May they become one. There's something progressive about this. So in nature, we are one. If you're a Christian, you're connected to every Christian that's ever lived, and you're practically connected to those in your church as a visible demonstration. So that there's a reality that that's just the case. We are one in Christ. There's one church. But we are, we are becoming that in our experience. So we are growing more and more. It's kind of like an individual life. We are declared righteous before God. That's our justification. But we are becoming more and more like Jesus. So he's declared us righteous, but my life is not perfectly righteous, nor is yours. We're becoming more like what he's declared us to be, and that's true with our unity too. We've, we've been declared one, and we, he's now praying that we may become perfectly one, that we may be brought to complete unity. It's a progressive work. It's a progressive work that God is doing in us so that the world may know, so that the world may believe so that they may see as we are growing together in unity. There's a gospel witness. I think part of that becoming and part of that growth together uh, recognizes that we're not there yet. And the reality is that even when we're not there and when we fail and when there's disunity and there's anger and separation and difficulty, that even there, there can be forgiveness extended that is still makes, uh, you know, we're becoming is a greater expression of our unity and becomes a, a gospel testimony. So even when there is separation, when there is a reconciliation, there's a gospel testimony. If a married couple is having a difficult time, a Christian couple, difficult time in their marriage, and it's, uh, there's separation. When there is a reconciliation between the, the, the two Christians and that married couple, that is a great testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though the, the testimony of Christ loving the church uh, and the church re- responding to Christ, even though that testimony may be marred by their sin for a season, in their reconciliation, there is gospel testimony that goes forth from that. There is, rec- there is a recognition. So it is something we are becoming. And we only, to to see how important this is, we only have to consider what is it like when this is not the case? What is this like when when it is not the case? Sometimes we see the value of something by considering its opposite. So when we see what what happens when the church, when believers are, uh, lack unity, then it, it, it hinders, it hinders our witness. Oftentimes we don't think about that, we just think about the difficulty there is for us. Uh, in the church, but we don't think about the testimony that is broadcast through that. Uh, Kostenberger, in his commentary on John, said, A disunified Christian community denies by its behavior the message which it proclaims. It denies by its behavior the message. So we proclaim the message we've been made one through Christ, but we demonstrate through our behavior that we are not one in Christ. And this is not a surprise. This is not new. If you're a new Christian, uh, I hate to baptize you into the reality of the humanity of the church, but the reality is this is not new. Um, I've, I mean, this has been more common than not somewhat in my growing up. I mean, the church I grew up in was a church plant that, that, that grew quickly. And I was a kid, and some people disappeared, and I didn't know. And back in those days, I thought, maybe, was it rapture? I don't know what happened. Some people disappeared, and we're still here. But uh, so... And I just remember asking my mom one time, 
uh, we drove by this church, and she pointed out to me this church building, and she told me that those were the people that used to be with us, but now they had a building over here. So we're here. They built fast. Um, so I guess the people with means all left. I don't know, but they had enough to build a building fast. So we're here, and they're there. And I, that just didn't make sense to me. I think, well, we're a church, but now there's two churches, and it wasn't a church plan. Of all things, it was a, it was a split over a view of alcohol is what the what the issue actually split that that church was. She explained to me. Um, so I've seen that. I can remember being in college and and being a part of a church that had a significant split because uh, the leader was revealed to be living an immoral lifestyle, and uh, so after that happened, after that was revealed, uh, people took sides. I didn't like the guy to begin with, and those people go over here. I'm not saying that. That's a quote of some people. So they kind of go over here. I didn't like him, didn't trust him to begin with. That just shows me this isn't a place to be. I'm out of here. Then other people hanging on, and they're hanging on to keep things together, and it split because of somebody's sin. It's part of a church one time that had a split because the uh, well, there's tons of reasons. that You can never oversimplify these kinds of things, but the senior leader felt led to uh, start another church, which is fine, um, but the church w- ended up being started very near the existing church, and so then many people felt like they needed to make a choice. Do I stay where I was? Do I go over here? Um, there was a break-off, and it wasn't a church plant, and so the church split over it. And so in those kinds of situations, we think about a local congregation, a community group, a family um, we think in those situations that that when that happens, we we can imagine the difficulty of that, and and we can we can be aware of how that can be a hindrance to our testimony. But the opposite is equally true: that when there is unity on display, there is a an expression of the message and the work of Christ that is appealing, that is um, that the Lord uses that the Lord communicates through. And we can take that for granted. We can take just getting along and having a unity together. We can take that for granted. But it's something Jesus is praying for, and it's something that he has provided, and it's something that we want to treasure and cultivate by firstly pursuing him and recognizing the gift of his unity. Why? Because gospel expansion is at stake. Mission, outward mission is at stake because this is a vehicle, a tool, a means for mission. I I think the point of Jesus' prayer in these verses, the point is that our loving unity is mission critical, we could say, for gospel advancement. Our loving unity is mission critical for gospel advancement. For the gospel to go forth, it's vital that the reality of our oneness be expressed by our lifestyles, that the reality of our union in Christ be expressed by who we are as a people. It will not flawlessly be expressed. It will not be expressed without disagreement, without anger, without offense, without temporary separations and, you know, relational snags is the way I mean that. It will not happen perfectly. But even when there's brokenness in relationship, may there, that there can be a reuniting and gospel testimony goes on gloriously. Because even there, the way we peacemake, the way we resolve differences should be different than the world does as well. Our loving unity is mission critical for the gospel to be advanced. And here's how that, here's how that ultimately happens. Our, our, our loving unity, I, I use that phrase, is it's expressed by Christ's love for us and our love for one another. Look at the last verse, verse 26. I made known, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me He's praying to the Father. Father, the love that you have loved me, may that love be in them and I in them. Jesus is praying for a unity that's based firstly on what he's done on the cross for us. Secondly, it's, it's, um, it happens through the love the Father has for the Son being in us so that we experience his love and then we share that love with one another. That's the way unity is cultivated. It's through love. It's not institutional unity. It's not, well, it will be, but it's, that's not the goal. It's not just, let's get everybody 
in an institution, as a member of an institution together. That's not what he's talking about, some kind of formal bond. He's talking about something that's living, something that's organic, something that's vital, something that's real, something that's life on life. Not just our names, your name and my name, happen to be on a roll of a church. That we're in a database somewhere, that we are members of the same organization. Unity. That's not it. It's that life on life, there is love expressed. As the Father has loved the Son, may, may, may they have that love, may it be in them, that love, and I in them. May Christ be in us so that there is a love for one another. This is not the first time Jesus has mentioned this. If you flip back, if you have your Bible with you, if you just flip back to chapter 13, look at what he says in 1334. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he's talking to his disciples. Love one another, new commandment. Verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he's saying, if you love one another, people will know that you're my followers. People will know you're a Christian. Not because you you have some kind of a lingo or because you show up at a building on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or because you're generally a nice person or you have manners or you're polite or you're moral. By your love for one another, people will be able to look and say they're different. There's something about them that reflects well, reflects their followers of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a learner or a follower. They'll know you're my learner by your love for one another. And so here's Jesus at the end praying, unity, may they be one as we are one, union in Christ, the basis for our unity. And may that be a unity that's fueled by love, the love the Father has for the Son, which is in them, so that they may love one another. This is how this works out. It works out through love. So there is a, me- a message, the love of God for people expressed in Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel is good news that God loves us enough to come and to give his life, Jesus Christ, to give his life to forgive our sins and, and uh, reconcile us to him and give us eternal life. That's love. There's a message of love. And there's also a testimony of love. Find your local evangelical church and see it on display. Find the church that preaches the gospel, any church, any believers that preach the gospel, and we should be able to see something of the gospel on display. Mercy, patience, forbearance. For What is the cross about? Forgiveness. That's why God is dying on a cross to forgive people that have opposed God. And so must the church extend mercy and forgiveness just as we have received the love of the Father for the Son, the love of God in us for one another. This is the way it works out. I I just think it's so much more important than we know. It's so much more important because it's here at the end of his life. This is what's on Jesus' heart. This is what John, the Holy Spirit, is inspired John to preserve loving unity, which is critical, mission critical for the gospel's advance to others. And I just realized it's easy for me to not really think in these terms. It's easy for me to to take unity for granted as a gift from when it's there as a gift. We've experienced a tremendous unity as a church in our history. We'll celebrate, you know, next week we'll have a picnic, celebrate our anniversary and um, and do it by battling tug of war community group on community group to describe to show our unity we'll beat one another and celebrate that and uh, <laughs> cheer the winners and mourn the losers so it'll be great and um, but you know I could just take that I can take the ride we've experienced for granted and when the disunity arises and separation I can um, you know I can just instead of going to the Lord and, and looking as he does here in prayer for these things, I can often just try to fix it, try to ignore it, try to muscle my way into it, to sort it out, try to avoid it, whatever. But here Jesus is going to the Father about this. This is his burden, and it must be ours as well as we run towards Christ and we receive the fruit of the expression of unity in our midst. I, I thought a lot of ways about a lot of ways to 
apply this to us today. Um, My first impulse is to think sort of congregational, structural, and talk about unity in this meeting and all that happens on a Sunday. Or maybe a better way would be talk about community groups and how can we express this in our community group or even in our families or something like that. So my, my, my default is to kind of go there and say this is how that unity works itself out. But I felt like as I was looking at this passage that the Lord wants to, would want to do something much more focused and draw us to think in the first place not about this group or not about my community group or not about my spouse or my children or my friends, but to think about my own heart and apply what the Lord is saying here to my own heart. I, I just want to ask the question this morning. I think the Lord wants to make this very personal for each of us. I want to ask the question, I mean, is there anyone in this room, or let's go beyond that, people you know who will be in the room next hour, any, is there anyone in our fellowship, anyone in our church that you would have to honestly say today, I do not love that person with the love of Christ that he's praying about right here. Not just how are we all getting along or how's the community group getting along. or, But is there anyone that personally I'm not expressing the love of Christ to? I mean, in my heart, I don't really love that person with the love of Christ. And if you're from a different church, please don't take a pass and say, I don't even know these people. They're fine with me. Think about your church right now, okay? <laughs> Think about your Christian friends right now. Is there anyone that I am judging unkindly in my heart? Is there anyone, even this morning, I've had thoughts about unkind judgments. They're just resident with me. When I think of that person, I think this. And it doesn't represent a charitable attitude. It represents an unkind assessment and judgment over them. And I may smile when we talk at the coffee table afterwards. But on the way home, I'll be talking about so-and-so. Or I'll be thinking about so-and-so. Is there anyone in this room or gathered the next hour that you find yourself bitter towards. Bitter towards. This will take about a millisecond to assess one's heart on. It'll be the face and the name that instantly comes to mind. You won't need to take a personal retreat for 24 hours to pray to find out if you're bitter. You know right now, I know right now, the Holy Spirit brings conviction right now. Is there anybody that you're bitter toward? Is there anyone that you haven't forgiven? When we talk about the love of Christ, it's very tangible. And it issues forth in forgiveness. That is a primary theme of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Holy One of God forgiving sinful people. And if he can do that, then sinful people are to forgive other sinful people. Anyone that I've not forgiven. Is there anyone that I've offended that I know of? Is there anyone that I know... They have a problem with me. Is there anyone that I know I have offended and the Lord would tell me to just stop the worship service right now and go get right with them? Leave your gift at the altar and go get right with your brother is what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Is there anyone in my community group, in my family, in my church, is there anyone here that I've spoken of privately in a way that doesn't reflect the sacrificial love of Christ? Jesus could not elevate this to a higher place than praying his closing words, may your love for me be in them, and may they be one. It does not get any more sober or serious than that. We cannot elevate, I cannot hype this. I, I, I cannot possibly hype this as too important. Is there anyone that I've spoken of, do speak of privately in a way that doesn't reflect Christ's love for them? And by speaking... I mean this, texting, right? Speak. You can't just say speak anymore. So is there anyone that I have spoken of? Is there anyone that I have text, texted of? Speaking means texting. It means emailing. It means Facebooking. It means tweeting. It means blogging. It means any way of communication imaginable? Is there any place in my life where my words typed or spoken or thumbed or whatever is not reflective of the sacrificial love of Christ for that person? 
It's, it's easy to say, are we all kind of unified? Yeah, we sang the songs, and yeah, we were showing up in the living room on Wednesday night, and nobody broke out into a fist fight. I guess we're unified. I think Jesus goes much more specific than this and says, in my heart am I unified with the people of God? Is there anyone that I'm critical of? Maybe you're a leader in this church. Is there anyone that you serve in leadership that you're critical of, that you're tempted to be impatient with? Is there anyone that sort of agitates you and you're not looking at them with the love of Christ, called to be patient with all? Or maybe you're not a leader, but maybe you look at some leaders in the church in that way. Do I view people with the love of Christ? Is there anyone that I'm not at peace with today? My husband, my wife, my parent, my child, my sibling. Is there anyone in my family that I'm not at peace with? There's a gap. There's a break. Is there anyone that I'm envious of? Anyone that I think myself superior toward? So I just think I'm, I just think self-righteously about them. I wouldn't come up this morning and say, hi, I'm better than you. But in my mind, I think things like, how could they do that? How could they say that? How could they wear that? How could they act like that? I would never do that. I'm thinking myself superior and self-righteous to them. Is there anyone's failures in the church that you've secretly celebrated? I'm glad it didn't work out for them because I'm jealous of them. I'm envious of them. Everything goes their way. And here's the bottom line. Is there anyone I wish wasn't in the church? Real honest. Is there anyone that if they disappeared from community group next week, I'd be fine with that. If I heard they went over to another community group, oh, really? That's what I'm thinking on the inside. Is there, it's funny, but it's sad, right? Is there anybody that I just wish wasn't in G2? I wish wasn't in Reach. I wish it wasn't in my community group. I wish wasn't in this church because if I see them and I run into them in the hall, there's just going to be an awkwardness about them. It just presses me. I mean, I like everybody, but that one person and it's just he or she's just there. That's the very person. It's not the rest of the folks you like. That's the very person that God wants to address today with his love and change your perspective by seeing the love of God extended to you, the love of God extended to me in the cross that Jesus is so concerned about what our unity, that he is praying for the Father for our unity, but he's going to do something much greater than praying to the Father for our unity. He's about to be killed for our unity. And nails will be driven in his hands, and nails will be driven in his feet, and he will be beaten and spat upon and mocked and pierced with a sword, nails pierced into his head. And if that were not enough of an expression of his desire for us to know him and experience his unity. Something much greater will happen, which is invisible. There will be signs like the sky darkening and an earthquake that tip us off to something's happening that's not normal. But there will be something happening much greater. And the wrath of the Father, the holy judgment of the Father against our sin against our self-righteousness, against our self-superiority, against our anger, against our judgments, against our gossip, against our dislike. All of these things, all of those sins will be placed upon Jesus. All of that list of questions that we fought and felt, all of those will be placed on Jesus and the Father will pour out His anger and His judgment on Jesus for those thoughts which are mine, those deeds which are mine, those hatreds, those angers, those petty thoughts, those selfish, impatient, arrogant attitudes that are resident in me. God himself will pay for them. That's how important this is to Jesus. It doesn't just find place in prayer at the end of his life. It finds place as he hangs on a cross and absorbs the wrath of the Father for our sins in our place as our substitute. And the good news of that is all of those things that I just talked about, they are forgiven by Christ. 
And he dies so that we may be changed, so that we may experience the love of God, so that we don't have to relate to one another in these ways, but we can relate to one another with the love of Christ. He dies so that we might not only be forgiven, as wonderful as that is, but that we might be changed. So that this unity is not just expressed when we all get to heaven one day in the future, but this unity is expressed today in an increasing manner, that they may become one because of the blood of Christ shed for us, because of his burial, and because he is raised from the tomb in power, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death, defeating divisiveness and envy and hatred and separation and self-righteousness. He defeats that. There's an empty tomb today which proclaims that Jesus is risen and he is empowering a people by his grace to express the union that is already present because we've been unified with him and thus we're unified with one another. And when that begins to take hold in a people, it's infectious. People see that in the book of Acts. People see and they notice they've been with Christ. Jesus promises if you love for one another, they'll know you're my disciples. Not if you all look alike and speak alike and act alike. That's called the click. But when you take diverse people with different opinions, different preferences, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ideas, different... uh opinions on a lot of different secondary issues and you throw all those people together and rather than fight they love one another they're willing to die to their preference for the glory of god they're really to they're willing to keep central what is central the work of christ they're willing to go after jesus and not their agenda and so they they walk in unity they're willing to die to themselves when there is an offense and there is a fight and there is an argument and they're willing to get reconciled by the grace of god for the glory of god when that starts happening People see something's different. That's not a club. That's not a clique. That's not a group of people with, that's not an institution. That's the work of Christ. And God will use that as a testimony. May that increase in our midst. I mean, it's in our, God has done a wonderful work here. If you're new here, I'm not preaching this, uh, you know, to avert any church split in our church. I'm, I'm preaching this because it's in the Bible, but I'm preaching it because I, I, I want to inspire, I want the Lord to inspire us to seek to cultivate this more and more and to guard and to preserve this and where there is disunity, to repent and come to the Lord who gloriously brings unity as a testimony of His grace. Our loving unity is mission critical for the advance of the gospel. God wants to display what he's done in us and through us so that others see that the Father really has sent the Son. He is who he said he was, and he changes people. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.